the mom when she came in and she said, I don't understand what the issue is. This is my kid. You're in the business of kids. Deal with my kid. It's not a boy issue. It's not a girl issue. Here's my kid. Teach my kid. And I think that that's what we're really trying to figure out. We really want to be the best school that we can be. And we really want to get to know your kid and your family and build this community where we're doing really good teaching and learning. Welcome to a podcast of Prisma Center for Jewish Day Schools. This is Elliot Rabin, Prisma's Director of Thought Leadership. This podcast is part of a series called Research Encounter, featuring a conversation between researchers and day school leaders about a recent work of scholarship. Today, we are happy to welcome Jason Ablin, who has over 30 years of experience in Jewish education as a teacher, principal, and head of school. He mentors new leaders throughout the country and is the director of mentor teaching, teacher training program at AJU. He also consults with schools on gender equity, positive faculty engagement, and school culture. Jason is joined by Hannah Bennett, head of school at Briskin Elementary School in Los Angeles, and Jason Feld, head of school at Northwest Yeshiva High School at Mercer Island, serving the Jewish community of Greater Seattle. Today's discussion is sparked by Jason Ablin's new book, The Gender Equation in Schools, How to Create Equity and Fairness for All Students. Jason Ablin, I guess I'll use your last name since there are two Jasons here. Um, Tell us how you came to write the book and what you hope it accomplishes. How did you come to conclude that gender was so pervasive and important a factor in education? So thank you, Elliot. And I just want to thank you for having me here and us here. I, I really love this format of being able to dialogue with educational leaders and people in the field, because that's exactly the reason I wrote the book. I wrote the book to create a dialogue, to create a discussion. And having Dr. Bennett here and also Jason Feld, uh, who I've worked with specifically up, as, up at his school in Seattle, is it's a real honor for me. And um, it's a pleasure uh, to have this conversation today. I, I think this is an evolving story where this book came from, and I can't really pinpoint the exact day I figured out that I needed to focus on gender. I do know that it's been central to my thinking for many, many years in education for probably as many years as I've been teaching for that matter. And I think that there came a breaking point um, where I was working with schools, particularly a K through eight in Los Angeles, where I was just walking into classrooms and becoming so aware of the ways that, in fact, you know, very enlightened, smart, intelligent, very effective teachers were doing all sorts of things that unfortunately not by intention, were undermining students because of certain gender disparities and the way they were contextualizing gender in the classroom. And so I started to work directly with the teachers and we started to really work together collaboratively on this and to have, you know, great conversations, discussions about classroom construction, construction about, you know, discussions about language that was used to describe students and how we were, you know, putting them into basically a gender box by the way, we were literally using language to describe uh, to describe them. 
And then finally, I think uh, the writing of the book came from really uh, the very beginnings of the hashtag Me Too movement. And I, I just said, you know, if we're going to get anywhere on this issue of gender equity and gender fairness and starting to have really a new conversation about gender, we needed to start not with 50 year old men, but with uh, boys and girls and the entire really rethinking the entire spectrum of gender in our schools in general. Uh, I, I really felt it was time to have a new conversation about our schools. And hopefully the book will act as one particular tool for schools to use in the future to really start implementing change. Jason and Hannah, love to hear your reactions to the book, to the kind of charge for change that uh, Jason sees as necessary. One of the things that I think is is important um, for me as I read the book and as I reflect upon my own practice as an educational leader and our particular school culture um, is really broadening uh, while at the same time narrowing the focus um, that gender identity um, and roles are, are top and center in our culture and society right now. What I think that um, Jason's book does uh, in a very important way is take that and narrow the focus down into um, the classroom and the important one-on-one relationships that students have with teachers and how a lot of these assumptions once surfaced um, could really help us improve our practice uh, of teaching and learning day-to-day in the classroom. So I think that at some point we'll get into the differences of the schools that we work in. Um, And as I read the book, I spent a lot of time thinking about that. Uh, Why was I asked to be on this podcast? Other than the fact that as I left this morning for work, my 10-year-old daughter thought that I was the coolest because I was going to be on a podcast. I don't think she has any sense of what podcast I'm going to be on. I don't think she's going to really enjoy listening to it. But the fact that I am on a podcast really has some cachet. Um, But as I was reading the book, um, there are pieces of it that really are not resonant with my school culture, because my school, I think, is at one very far end of the spectrum in a lot of ways when it comes to issues around gender and gender identity. Um, We are a reform Jewish day school in the center of Hollywood. Um, I'm a queer head of school. Um, We have uh, many parents who identify on the LGBTQIA spectrum. Um, We have elementary school age kids who identify that way. Um, When you when you think about uh, issues of gender, we have kids who, elementary school age kids, who could write this book in certain ways, right, around issues of gender. Um, What I do think is really provocative and what I do think is very resonant are the issues that Jason raises around what the teacher brings to the table. You can have these children come into the classroom who are very aware of who they are, 
um, and who are being raised in a way where when we get on to the, the topics of how we gender children and the stereotypes around children, I've really been thinking about whether or not you see that in our classrooms. And our kids are the first ones to tell you not to put them into a box, right? They are very aware of that, but they're still being raised in a society that largely puts you into a box. And so what does that look like? And what does it look like when you still have a teacher who brings all of their stuff into a classroom, who hasn't learned um, what their, constraints are and how to overcome those constraints. And I think the second piece that really is important to note is um, the science behind teaching, right? Why, when we go to teacher school, which for the record as a professional in California, and I know that Jason is in California as well, um, there is no teacher school, right? I don't know how many states in the United States are like this, but you don't go learn to be a teacher for four years in undergrad, right? You go get an undergraduate degree and then you go get a credential for maybe a year. So when you look at, at what one has to do to become a teacher, the rigor of becoming an educator really is not what it should be within the state of California. Um, but the idea that there is science behind what we need to know in order to best do what we need to do in the classroom should not be as radical of an idea as it is at this point in the world. So uh, I wanted to emphasize two very important points about this. I think that Dr. Bennett emphasizes something very important that every school culture is going to be really different about these particular issues. And at the same time, you know, as, as Hannah is mentioning, I can, I can walk into a school building that feels itself to be very progressive and very innovative. And, you know, they can be talking to me about, you know, pronoun use and all this kind of stuff. And when I walk into the classroom, I'll see practices that feel like the 1950s. You know, so, you know, you can have this kind of dissonance that exists inside a school. And I think it's really important to recognize that the school is really formulated and the energy comes from where students spend 90% of their time, which is in classrooms. So especially regarding an issue like gender, if teachers aren't really aware of the fact of the ways in which they're shaping that culture inside the classroom. And does it feel like an inclusive culture? Does it feel like everyone has a voice? Does it feel like uh, content is being dealt with in the same way when you're in a classroom? All of these sound like just educational issues, but really I think that they are very much based in gender bias. <laughs> and implicit understandings we have about gender in, in general. Um, and Jason mentioned something very important to me, which I don't want to lose in the conversation. Um, <clears throat> I didn't write the book as an ideological treatise, right, which is very important to me. I wrote this book to make sure that schools and children in schools can be more successful. And I believe we do that by applying this gender lens to what we do. We apply other lenses as well to this. But at the end of the day, what we're really trying to do is, hey, how can we help our students be their best selves and their best learners? And therefore, we absolutely need to apply this gender lens to it. 
in other school environments, that might be more of an intersectional conversation. That might also have to do with race and ethnicity and culture and all those different kind of things. Um, and in, in many ways in our schools also, we have many ethnic and cultural issues to deal with in Jewish day schools. There's no question about that. We're not, we're not monolithic in that way as a lot of people outside of Jewish education might, might think it to be so. But at the heart of it for me, gender is so primary, right? That, that this, that this 57 year old cisgender white male can sit down and write a, write a work on gender, uh, suggests that it's really important to all of us. It's it's so central to the human condition that it's something we really need to, need to deal with every day in our school to make our kids more successful. Jason, you come up with these wonderful models of how gender plays out in schools, which you call precious eggs and kept princes. I remember reading that on your on your about that on your blog long time ago and and really being blown away by it. So uh, why don't you tell us something about who these characters are, how you how you came up with them and how prevalent do you see these? Are these basically kind of paradigms for boys and girls in your view or if not uh how do you understand them? First of all, I want to make something very clear that that those two constructs which I play with in chapter 2, they are gender perceptions, right? Uh, And that's a very important part of this because they're very binary in many ways. And I don't buy into that binary at all, right? What I buy into is that we bring those binary perceptions to what two students are and the way we construct the narrative around students. That's a very important distinction that, that I wanted to make right there. So my under, you know, it's the beginning of the book, obviously. And one of the things I wanted to establish in the beginning of the book is that there are ways that we put uh, students into these gender boxes, you know, and we as adults, it makes us feel more comfortable. <laughs> it doesn't do very much for the students, but it makes us feel really, really comfortable. So one of the things we do is I believe that we treat our quote unquote, female students, ones we identify as female, we treat them as if kind of they're, they're going to break, that they, they don't have any resilience, that they constantly need to be kind of emotionally monitored all the time, that, you know, that they need help getting through the day, like we need to kind of rescue them from themselves, right, because otherwise, they're not going to be successful, right, left to their own devices. And that's a very old gender trope. Right. That's a very old conception of the way we view girls in general. Um, and with boys, I think the general perception is, unfortunately, and and I think Jason will be able to attest to this because we had some really deep conversations with some of the boys in his school. Um, you know, the boys are constantly put in this position of that they're supposed to be kind of leaders and problem solvers and they're supposed to save everybody and they're going to be saviors and they're going to be great from the very beginning. There's all this kind of uh, built-in tension, uh, I believe, about what the expectations for them are going to be. And then when you start having conversations with them when they get older in middle school and high school, one of the things they'll tell you about is about the intense anxiety that they experience around that, around that narrative. 
feeling as if they can never really feel successful at something. They feel like they're losing all the time because we put these enormous pressures on top of them to be the rugged individual, to stand out, uh, to be, you know, uh, hypersexualized in many ways, which leads to other problems on our campuses as well with kids, especially as they get older. Uh, there's a lot of research that goes on about what, what happens to boys in particular from middle school into high school, where still in middle school, early middle school, they're able to maintain very close, uh, loving, caring relationships with other boys in their lives. And by the time they hit high school, they've just almost completely erased that narrative from their experiences and identity. They talk about their relationships differently. And for me, that's all about this, this metaphor or construction of what I call the kept prince of what we do for boys in schools. But again, I really want to emphasize those are perceptions that we bring to them more than anything else. I agree that it is built off of perception um, and it it comes from different places. I, I think there's this unspoken alliance between the educators in the classroom, the administration, and the parents, that that perception and that construct um, is, you know, how we're all going to speak and navigate these various relationships. And so you'll hear a lot, um, I'll hear a lot when parents are coming to me, if it's um, a female student, um, about drama, uh, drama and emotions and, and stress levels. And when parents come to me uh, to talk about their, their male child, um, it's about achievement and, and how are they going to get into college and what are they putting on their resume? Um, and there's a lot of anxiety, I think, right now um, in a lot of homes. Um, parents are working longer hours than ever. Um, oftentimes both parents are, are, you know, working hard to make ends meet. They're not spending as much time with their children, really prioritizing the values, um, and the virtues that they want to see in their child. And the net result of that under the time pressure is, use the construct, use the perception, use the buzzwords. And that then becomes the formula by which the teachers, admin, and parents are going to form that relationship. Um, and one of the great things about, you know, that chapter in particular, but the book in general is really giving us an opportunity to step back look at the consequences of buying into those perceptions and offering some practical small steps to re-engage with different language and different assumptions and different perceptions where we're really putting the student at the center um, and their learning and, and their development at the center as opposed to achievement or popularity or reduction of drama. Hannah, 
you talked about your school being being different. Do do any of these, whether you call st- stereotypes or narratives, or one time you used the word mythology, do they play out in your school? Do you have other narratives or other gender stereotypes that you're dealing with? What does it look like where you are? So I think that as you keep reading the book, you go into the anomalies. And I think that what is, when you take a step back, when I read this with a um, a kind eye, I think that what we try to do is just make sense of the world, right? And one of the ways that we make sense of the world, we have so much information coming in that we naturally categorize, right? And it's not what I think, um, it's what we know. We know that there's, there's research that backs that up. It's one of the reasons why we categorize. And one of the really easy ways to categorize is by gender, right? It's a really simple thing to do. And then it causes problems. But that's, that's where it comes from is it's really easy. Boys and girls, let's line up. Except for it's not as easy as boys and girls, right? Um, and so we've gotten, we've gotten to the place where we're not using boys and girls. Um, but then what do you use, right? Because boys and girls is just so easy. And it's, it's, part of the, it's part of the fabric of the way that we were all raised. There was no problem with boys and girls. So when you read about the anomalies, um, maybe we have a school full of anomalies, which I'd be very proud of. But what really stuck out to me in, was this character of this kid, Jesse, and not really the kid, Jesse, but the mom, when she came in and she said, I don't understand what the issue is. This is my kid you're in the business of kids, deal with my kid. Um, It's not a boy issue. It's not a girl issue. Here's my kid, teach my kid. And I think that that's what we're really trying to figure out, right? We'll take, we'll take whoever you have. Um, We really want to be the best school that we can be. And we really want to get to know your kid and your family and build this community where we're doing really good teaching and learning. Um, And I think that that's the part when you dive into Jason's take on what education is and the evolution of education, and frankly, the lack of change in education over the years. It's so confounding, right? Like, how are we in 2022? um, And we're still doing the same thing that has been done over and over and over again. And I think getting this gender thing under control would be really good. That would be a really good thing to do, but there's still a whole bunch of work to do once you get that under control, because you still have the Jessies who come to school who aren't understood. And one would think at a school, you could send any kid in and we could, we could tackle that kid in the most constructive way, right? That we could really bring kids into a school and get them get who they are and help them grow into who they are meant to be. And I think that demystifying gender and embracing each child for who they are on the gender spectrum is a piece of that puzzle. But I know from the work that we're doing, it's not the only piece of the puzzle. One of the things I wanna ask you since we are all talking about and working within the context of Jewish schools is how does being a Jewish school play out in in the conversations that Jason brings to the book and that uh, the conversations about gender in our larger society that he kind of summarizes so so brilliantly. 
how does it how does it complicate or enhance enrich the, the school's ability to address students individually and demystify gender, as you put it. And I'm talking both Jewish society and, and Jewish traditions as it as it lives in your schools. So I was struck by the fact that Jason doesn't out himself as a Jewish educator in the book. We get to the point where he talks about the fact that he's working at a school where the kids are segregated by gender. Um, but it, we don't get to a point where I know what schools he's working in, right? I've got the inside scoop because I followed his career and I live in the same city. Um, but it doesn't mention anywhere that they're Jewish schools, which I'm curious about. I'm curious about the intentionality or the lack of intentionality and whether or not it matters. There's a part of me that believes more than a part of me. In the end, there's more similar than there is different about schools. Um, I think that kids are kids and parents are parents. And in my experience, ranging from a Title I school in the middle of Compton um, to a West LA private Jewish school to a middle of Hollywood private Jewish school, there is more the same than there is difference, much to my surprise. That being said, each school certainly has its own unique culture, um, its own unique vibe. And one has to be culturally competent, which within the system one works in order to leverage um, one's ability to create the change that one wants to be able to, to make. I think that within the school that I currently work, um, there is a real desire among the entire population to address issues of gender equity in a very real way that makes this kind of work much easier than it would at a different place, um, which is not to say that it's not doable in any place, but this is not an issue that is hard for me to do. There are other issues that are hard for me to do. This is not one of them. Yeah, Hannah, I want to address my, you know, my closeted Jewish approach to the book, which I think was really important. I'm glad you raised that, actually. You're the first person, I think, to have raised this seriously. So I, I'm all in. I'm all in on this conversation. I really wanted, and I, you kind of answered the question yourself, I really wanted to create something that could be seen as a tool by any school that picked it up. And I didn't want distractions. You know, that's that's what I felt was going to happen. And I agree with you 100 percent. I think that, you know, we're more alike than we are different when we walk into these schools and take a look at what what's going on in a day to day basis with the challenges that we face and, and things like that. You know, I'm not dismissing or undermining also what it's like to work in a school with heavily marginalized populations, particularly when there's uh, high levels of poverty involved. You know, I mean, uh, we're we're pretty blessed in our community to be dealing also often with the problems that we have, right? But on, on another level, I also do believe that the, the book is there to serve education. And if I was just going to write a book about Jewish education in that sense, or it would just, there might be some people who might say, oh, this is not for me. And I wanted to say, you know, this is a tool. It's like a hammer. It's going to nail any, it's going to hammer any nail into the wood. So that was super important to me. I think when I was, when I was, it was, in other words, it was very intentional. 
I should just put it that way and leave it at that, right? Yeah. I assume so. (laughs) (laughs) Jason Feld, um, you obviously work in a very different kind of school up in uh, Seattle. If you could answer that question about how Jewish community and tradition impacts your work with gender and stereotypes. Hannah raises a good point that uh, in in her context, uh, dealing front and center with gender and equity uh, is not not the challenge. My context is a little different in that we're an Orthodox high school um, that serves a broad swath of the uh, Seattle Jewish community. Um, and we're a small uh, Jewish community. And there have been traditionally in Jewish education, um, you know, going back hundreds of years now, um, and in Jewish life, very well-defined gender roles. Um, and that has carried over into modern uh, Jewish education. So when I came to the school, for example, uh, five years ago, there was two separate curricula for the male students and the female students in Judaics. So in Judaics, uh, the female students would learn about uh, the laws of the holidays and how to maintain the home, the male students would learn Talmud, and they were segregated uh, when it came to uh, their Jewish studies, which was 50% of their day. And then when they took general studies, it was co-ed. Fast forward five years later, I've, you know, we now have all of our students learning the same curriculum, um, both in Judaics and in general studies. And our male students learn how to maintain a, you know, Jewish home and the laws of the holidays. uh, And alongside them, female students and they're learning Talmud together. That was a big shift for our community. There was a lot of questions uh, about the motives behind it. Were we trying to be politically uber progressive? Where is this going? Where does it end? And, you know, I, I think that, again, to go back to the book, we need to keep the student experience and their learning front and center. That really does help clarify and simplify what it is that we do in our schools and why do we do it. And, you know, I found that when you really approach it in terms of, of what, what does good teaching look like um, and what are the benefits, not for, you know, students writ large, but for your child for your community, it becomes a lot clearer and it opens up minds, you know, to find that common ground in ways that would be much more difficult if 
you know, I was trying to lead some sort of uh, crusade. Uh, that was never the intention. It was about, I want my students to be exposed to the classical texts, to struggle with unpacking a complicated piece of Talmud, um, and knowing that, you know, most of our of our students, when they're starting their own families, God willing, um, that it's just as likely that the, you know, the husband is going to be busy preparing the home for Shabbat that's going to start in an hour and a half because his partner was, you know, still at the law firm and will come in right before the Sabbath. So it's really equipping our students for their communal Jewish life and practice, um, but in a way that is more effective uh, to give them the knowledge and skills and ability to be full partners in Jewish life in a way that I felt our old paradigm um, wasn't fully serving our students. You know, Jason, you're reminding me of a story that I just want to uh, tell because I think it's it's really an interesting and provocative story in many ways. And, uh, you know, I've worked in Orthodox day schools, modern Orthodox day schools, and I've also worked in community day schools. Uh, fast forward to about four years ago, and I was asked to come into one of the Orthodox boys schools in Los Angeles to do a workshop for three hours on gender and education for boys to really focus on that, which was amazing, by the way. The teachers were amazing. The rabbis were amazing. And, you know, one, someone, you know, the head of the school warned me about one particular rabbi who might be, and he was the most engaged person in the room. He was coming up to me every 15 minutes, quoting something from the Talmud about what we we're saying about sexual identity. It was, it was like remarkable, right? In, the, in about three quarters of the way through the workshop, I started to talk a little bit about trans kids and we started to, there was an organic conversation that, that started to form. And I, and I, and I said to them, you, you know, over the course of so many years in Jewish day schools, I've had approximately five or six students who have transitioned. And I said to them, three of them from the Orthodox day school I worked at, all of a sudden everyone's head in the room turned like almost that was like an impossibility, you know, that that was the case. And I said, yeah, I'm still in touch with a couple of them. We, you know, they, we email each other. We're talking all the time. And I think that one of the things that we can do in our schools, particularly in per perhaps the more conservative areas of our, our Jewish education is just remind these schools, you are not in control of this narrative. You are not. You really aren't. And you might think you are, but you're not. And you're going to have kids who are going to identify in all sorts of ways along, to, along a gender spectrum. And you better figure out what that means for you as an institution and as a school. Like, how are you going to embrace that? How are you going to? Because what's your mission? Is your mission to align them gender wise? Or is your mission to keep them aligned to Judaism? And I think just to elevate a couple of things that Jason Feld said, in the idea that there's more similar between schools than different, when you put the child at the center, 
which I think is one of the advantages of working at a good private Jewish school or just a good school or just a good private school, right? Being able to really have child-centered decision-making. When you can be thoughtful in the decisions that you're making, um, when those decisions are educated decisions, I think one of the things when I started working at Briskin that was so interesting to me is it was very clear that we were very open to all things around gender, but it was also very clear that we didn't talk about those things. And so I think like any good school administrator, I started working on July 1st and I became part of the school admin team and we spent, I don't know, six weeks together. And part of this school culture is really spending a lot of time talking about kids, which is great. And then on the first day of school, a kid walked into the school who identified as male, but wore a dress, which is fine. It's really great, especially around here. But it is interesting to me that in that entire time from July 1st to what, September 5th-ish, no one mentioned it to me, right? It seems like something one would say something about. And so a lot of the work that we did in that first couple of years is talking about that idea of making thoughtful, educated decisions, right? Yes, it's okay, but why is it okay? Um, and how do we talk about these things so that you have educators who are informed and frankly, so you have parents who are informed and so that you have kids who are informed, <coughs> right? Um, and I think that that's a big piece of it to Jason's point, you can't, you're not making decisions in a vacuum. You're an educator and you have to educate your community and your community sometimes is much broader than you anticipated being in the beginning. We spoke earlier about how important this book was for helping teachers. So I want to, I want to go there. Jason Ablin, if you would talk a little bit about your findings, observing and your experience working with with teachers around uh, gender and education. Tell us what you found briefly in terms of how teachers often subconsciously reinforce gender narratives that they don't may not even be aware of. And what do teachers find particularly challenging in this work? I think my biggest takeaway from working with teachers is teachers not realizing how enormous their impact is on students. They almost underestimate it uh, to a large extent. And as uh, Hannah was talking about earlier, I think that the way in which teachers interact with students has real biological consequences, cognitive consequences. And we want those consequences to be really positive consequences. So we want to make sure that teachers understand that when, when students are watching teachers do things in a classroom, that there is actually an enormous amount of cognitive transference going on. Uh, a perfect example of this is, and probably the one that's most used and I mentioned in the book, is math anxiety. So when you're talking about elementary school students where 90% of their teachers can be female, 
and those female teachers have experienced anxiety in the past with their own math education, right? These are people who did not go into, let's say, engineering or medical school. They went into edu uh, education. That doesn't mean to say that they can't also be lovers of math, but there are obviously is a kind of sifting out process that goes on. And teachers can walk into those classrooms, bringing in a lot of that energy into their classes. And female students can experience a lot of transference around that anxiety, and it becomes a generational problem then. As young ch children grow up and they become teachers, and that they're, they're actually passing on that anxiety from generation to generation. So that's a really important aspect of the messaging that teachers give around uh, content area in particular. You know, teachers sometimes often use the language of, you know, we're, we're in the math lesson. Uh, I know everyone doesn't like math, so we're just going to get through this really quickly. Well, who doesn't like math? Who's saying that they don't like math, right? Is it the teacher? You know, and then that, that gets transferred on. Then another big area that we worked on, and we did a lot of work at this at, when I was principal of the day school in Los Angeles, was the language which teachers use to describe students. I'm a little bit strange this way, but I love reading teacher narratives. And we would do them three times a year, and it was like my favorite time of the year. I would sit down with thousands of student narratives it was, you know, it was like reading a novel for me. It was just so captivating, right? I learned everything about students and I learned a ton about teachers. But I was really able to uh, quantify the use of language when talking about boys versus talking about girls. And obviously that's included in the book, a lot of that information that teachers often don't notice that they're again, as Hannah mentioned, putting kids into gender boxes with certain kinds of language that they're using. My favorite one is the word sweet, right? Kids are all sweet until third grade. And then all of a sudden, boys stop being sweet, right? Girls continue to be sweet. Boys are no longer sweet, right? But there's all this very categorized language around it. And my problem with that was twofold. One was from a gender perspective, it really puts these kids into a box. But from a second perspective, a lot of the language that's used doesn't really tell us much about them as learners. So I really but isn't that the more isn't that the more important part, right? Like one hundred percent, right? I mean, that's the thing that just kills me is that what is, what is our job? And I get it from a gender perspective, but when you peel that away, ultimate. I mean, and that's work to do, right? Like if we get down to it. Um, but then we still end up with narratives that aren't describing our kids as learners, correct. even if we degender them. Even if you degender them, that's correct. And one one of the processes which I talk about in the book, which I worked with the print with the teachers in the school, was that I said we're going to get rid of the idea of narratives, and we're going to start talking about storytelling. We're going to be great storytellers about kids. Write down great stories about the kids in the classroom and what they're able to do, how they're able to achieve in the classroom, how they're kind to other people, in what ways, how are they engaging with each other. But they have to be based inside of storytelling. It completely changed the narrative process. And parents were thrilled. Parents were getting these stories now about their kids 
And one of the things I kept getting from parents over and over again was, boy, these teachers really know my kid. And that's a win. And then at the same time, as Hannah's mentioning, we get out of the gender, we get out of the gender equation, we get out of that, you know, that constraint in terms of really helping, helping us understand kids better. I think that uh, the administration, the educational leaders in schools can play a really key role here, because if we're messaging that parents are spending a lot of money on tuition and they want excellence and this is our opportunity for customer service, you're going to get a narrative uh, with you know words like sweet, high energy, pleasure to have in class. Some of the more sophisticated educators will, you know, sandwich something nice, something critical and with something nice. But as educational leaders, we can really work with our faculty. Uh, what is the purpose of writing these stories or narratives? And we all know that the stronger, more authentic the relationship between the teacher and student, the stronger the learning. And we want, you know, to not just have parent involvement, we want to have parent engagement, which means we need that full partnership. So we need to demonstrate that we know this student uh, as an individual um, and that we want to partner with the parents. And so it's, it's key that we use that, you know, comment space, not to be a customer service announcement, um, or not to be something that is cookie cutter, pleasure to have in class, but as an opportunity to engage the home with the teacher in service of the individual. This book really gets me thinking over the summer months, um, you know, where are those places where we are using language to put students into these predefined gender boxes um, and how could we break them a so that there's equity which is in and of itself a core value um, that we hold but also to put the learning and the individual student and their relationship with the you know with the educators and the classmates um, and the home front and center as part of the experience. I would add, I think that um, the pandemic has given us permission, at least, if not an imperative, to do it. We have proven that education doesn't have to be static, um, that we don't have to change at a snail's pace, that we don't have to be uh, beholden to that customer service perspective, and that in fact, we can do really incredible things. And I think that we can take all of this and actually do something with it. Um, so I'm excited to, to do that work uh, moving forward. Thank you, Jason Ablin, Hannah Bennett, and Jason Feld for a rich and enjoyable conversation about the ways that gender impacts education. If you liked what you heard, please give the podcast five stars and share it with your friends and on social media. You can follow our podcasts 
by searching for Prisma on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. To learn more about Prisma, go to our website at www.prisma.org and follow us at PrismaCJDS. Prisma's work, including this podcast, is made possible by generous funders who believe deeply in the power of a great Jewish day school education. Visit Prisma.org to add your name to the growing list of donors supporting day schools across North America. Thank you for tuning in to today's podcast. We hope you enjoyed and we'll come back again soon for future episodes.